Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Here's what I hear all the time. I wasn't anxious till I became a mom. Oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. That's kind of a classic. I wasn't anxious until blank. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's always some sort of content comes in. And then now the person's anxious. Right. Parents say that to me all the time, too. they like, well, she wasn't anxious until she threw up on the bus. Or she wasn't anxious until she started middle school. Everything was fine. And generally, that's just not the case. I mean, sometimes that happens. But when people say, I wasn't anxious until, the way we want to look at that is that for whatever reason, you were able to manage that anxiety until something happened that then it really intruded on your life. Welcome to Flusterclux with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Flusterclux, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. So Robin, I really like the episode that we did last week on those phrases that I hate. <laughs> hate is a strong word. It is a strong word. I know. And we talked about like, maybe we shouldn't use that word, but then we decided we were just going to go for it. I know my husband was like, don't use hate in the title because I could just hear him say to our kids, hate is a strong word, my dear. We don't use that word. Yeah. Hate is a strong word. But I like that episode and it got me thinking and then we were thinking that there are phrases that people hear as they're sort of working through this and figuring things out, the phrases that come at them that kind of drive them crazy and they don't know how to respond to. So I think maybe we can talk about those phrases. So what we were talking about is I've been following your work for a while. Many of our podcast listeners have too. So if we're in this camp and we're really working on it and we're observing it, that doesn't mean everyone else in our life has. And the crazy stuff people say about anxiety that you just want to bang your head against the wall. Yeah. So how do you respond to that? Like if you have a friend or a family member or somebody you work with who you're bringing up this topic of handling anxiety or emotions because it's everywhere, the topic is everywhere, and they say these things, how do you respond to them? Well, the funny thing is you've probably heard clients repeatedly, the parents say these things, and then all of us listening have at least one friend or one family member who has repeated them. Yeah. And they're common things that people say. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through some of these things that people say, and then I'm going to give you a retort. A retort. Yeah. And you've had to deal with this a lot too. So I'm sure that you have retorts also. Because I think we fancy ourselves full of retorts. <laughs> <laughs> we're retortful. We're resourceful and retortful. <laughs> oh, Okay. Yeah, I don't know that I have the retorts because unlike you, I, I wouldn't say that I have heard this stuff repeatedly the way you have. Okay. You know, you've heard all of this, but I've definitely had really intense conversations with friends who are struggling with anxiety or their kids are since we started the podcast and it can get really interesting. 
Yeah, it can get interesting. We're going to give you the language. We're going to give you the responses. Okay, so the first one is, this is just who I am. This is just who I am. Yes. So maybe you have a friend that's really anxious or a family member that's really anxious and you're trying to help because maybe like you've seen the light and now you are noticing their rigid patterns or you're noticing that the way that they respond, you're noticing their avoidance and you want to offer some help because, you know, if you had a friend that was suffering with bunions and you had a great solution to bunions, you would want to <laughs> offer that solution. So when they say, yeah, this is just who I am, then what do you say to that? Have you ever had anybody say that to you, Robin? I don't want it to derail this, but if you're like over 30, you'll say this is just who I am. But if you're under 30, you'll say this is my diagnosis. Yes. Because it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Yes, it very much is because you're trying to identify yourself as this unchangeable thing. Right. And I talk a lot about the problem with permanence and the power of permanent language that this is just who I am. And I do, when I talk to educators, I often say, you wouldn't do that if you had a little child that had a lisp, like my son did, or if you had a child who was struggling with reading, or you, you had a child who had some fine motor issues, we wouldn't just say, well, this is just who he is. We're not going to give him Mrs. Swenson as a teacher next year, because that's just going to be really hard for him because he has trouble with his S's. Or we're just going to give up on teaching him how to hold a pencil or a pen because his fine motor stuff is really lousy. We wouldn't do that. And yet a lot of people about their patterns with their anxiety, they will say, this is who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. And implied in that is that everybody else has to accept the behaviors that come with it, which I think is why it gets so frustrating for family members and friends. They're like, yeah, this is just who I am. It's easier to fix bunions than to make a cultural change of communication and behavior in a family. It's true. Although my friend just had bunion surgery and it was nasty. Okay. I actually know nothing about bunions. <laughs> it was bad. Yeah. So I think the reason I chose bunion surgery is because I just saw her go through bunion surgery. So anybody out there suffering from bunions, you have all of my empathy. I tell a story in the book about this client that I had that was so rigid about her refusal to drive on the highway, and she really expected everybody else to accommodate that. And when her daughter moved out of state, she was furious that her daughter expected her to drive on the highway to come see her. How dare she ask that of me because she knows how I am. Here's the retort. You can say, I think it's really tricky and it's really hard when you decide that something about you is permanent and then you want everybody else to accept it as well. And then you can talk to them about how absolutely cool it is that the brain changes, that there's neuroplasticity, that there's all sorts of research. I often reference the book by Norman Dodge, The Brain That Changes Itself, which is so, so cool about how the brain recovers from strokes, recovers from other injuries. And so when we accept that there's no change possible, when we accept that there's nothing you can do, you're also saying to the other people around you, so you all need to accept this about me as well, and that means you all have to accommodate me. That's why it gets so frustrating for family members. So you can say to them in a very sort of loving way, you know, the thing about when you say that this is who you are and that this won't change, I feel like you've given up on yourself in a way that I think I'm not ready to do. 
And then you can list the things that they've changed over time. Like I know that you used to think this and now you think this, or you used to not be able to do this and you learned how to do this. And remember that time that you said you would never swim in the ocean and then we went on that vacation and you did it and you had a great time. And you bring up all of these stories about their capacity to change. And you say, it's just hard for me to hear you say that because there's a lot that you can learn about changing your brain. So when you say that, you're saying to me, I give up on me and I don't want you to give up on you because I haven't given up on you. And that's a way to say it in a very loving and encouraging way. So as you know, I was talking about my grandmother, who's 98 in last Mm -hmm. week's episode. And even though realistically, when she has called me upset and very anxious and in panicky states at 98, I don't expect her to work through that and not have those patterns anymore. Mm -hmm. But I do say to her, we're going to get through this moment. So sometimes it's like, even if you are dealing with a relative or a friend who doesn't have a lot of capacity for big change, I've been content with changes in moments that conclude with connection. And that's the best we can do until the next time it happens. Right. She's 98. She has had some recognition. She has had some aha moments, right? Like even in the moment when you point it out to her, she can say to you, oh, yes, I'm doing that thing that you told me about. Exactly. Right? So maybe she's not going to, on her own, change that pattern by herself. But when she pulls you into it, you've given her information that now she doesn't push back and say, well, you're wrong. This is the way it's going. She will say, oh, that's that pattern you told me about. I'm learning about that pattern. That's really cool at 98 that she can do that. It is really cool. It just makes me think of a little eight-year-old or a 98-year-old. And the idea is, you know, you always say anxiety is an internalizing disorder. Mm -hmm. So those opportunities to get them out of their heads and to make a connection with you in a conversation will take it. Yeah. And the other thing that I talk about a lot with adults is that It is so important for you to own your own stuff. And so when somebody says, well, this is just the way I am, that's sort of they're owning their own stuff in a way that does not feel very helpful, right? Versus somebody saying, oh, I know that I do this and I'm really working on it and I recognize this pattern is really difficult for everybody to deal with. Versus that, well, I'll own my own stuff and you need to own my own stuff too. I was just about to say that comment is a one-dimensional ownership only. Mm -hmm. That's owning one side, but not recognizing how you still fit into a family system or a friendship system. Right. The comment of this is just who I am really means, and you all have to deal with this because I'm not going to do anything about it. And that's a very difficult stance for somebody to take. That's a very disconnecting stance for somebody to take versus, oh, I know I do this thing. I'm so sorry. I'm working on it. Ugh, I don't expect you to have to accommodate this pattern that I have and I recognize when I'm doing it. Even when your 98-year-old grandmother says, oh, I know you've told me about ruminating, haven't you? It just feels better, doesn't it? It just feels better. She loved that conversation when I said, you're a ruminating catastrophizer. She's now quoting me and telling other people. (laughs) So that's cool. Yeah. We'll take a break. And when we come back, tell us the next one. Okay. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. 
So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free apple. Option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. You know, when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you, well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. Okay, so now back to the show. So here's the next one. This is actually one that I hear pretty frequently that is kind of interesting to me. 
sometimes they'll say like, well, I don't really believe in anxiety. They'll say that more frequently. They say, well, my spouse doesn't believe in anxiety or my ex doesn't believe in anxiety. So it's making it difficult for us to change this because I've got a person who doesn't buy into it. He doesn't buy into it, which is so interesting to me. Do they really mean they don't believe in anxiety or they don't believe in therapy? Well, it's often that they don't believe in talking about what's going on. This really is about emotional literacy. Yes. They don't believe in giving it a name. They don't believe in talking about it. It's sort of like Voldemort, the emotion that shall not be named. If I don't talk about it, then it doesn't exist. And what I tell people to say is that, well, when you say you don't believe in anxiety, that means that you don't believe that people feel a certain emotion. So do you not believe in sadness? Do you not right. believe in anger? Do you not believe in disappointment? Do you not believe in grief? Do you not believe in joy? You're right. It's about emotional literacy, but it's about a fear of saying, if I talk about this and if I believe in it, that means that it's going to overtake me. So imagine if somebody said, well, I don't believe in grief. If we translate that, it sort of becomes, I don't believe in expressing or connecting or allowing grief to be a part of who I am because it's too overwhelming. It's too scary. Right. If someone told me I don't believe in grief, I would say, well, there is someone who simply can't acknowledge their grief. Mm -hmm. They put a lot of energy into compartmentalizing it and not naming it. It's too scary for them. Yep. And the other reason I think that people say I don't believe in anxiety is because people think that anxiety is a state of weakness. Yes. I honestly hear it more from men. Like it's much more frequent for a woman to say to me, my husband doesn't believe in anxiety or my ex-husband doesn't believe in anxiety. Because if you label your child or label yourself as anxious, that's a sign of weakness. Yeah. It's that limitation of that stereotype of an anxious person is someone who's fretting and feeling very fearful mm -hmm. and missing out on all the other ways that anxiety presents. Right. And they see it as like, that means you're like this neurotic mess and not recognizing that anxiety is a response to you feeling that you can't handle what life may throw at you. It's an overestimation of the problem, an underestimation of your resources. If I were you, listener, and I were talking to a relative or a spouse or somebody who said, I don't believe in anxiety, I would say to them, well, this isn't something that we get to choose to believe in or not. I think a better stance to take is that we all feel anxious at times because our bodies and our brains are equipped to do that. What are the skills and resources that I have inside of me that allow me to handle things so that when life is uncertain or life is overwhelming, I feel like I can step into that part of life. And you might say to somebody, I hear what you're saying, that you don't believe in anxiety. I think what you're saying is that you really don't want to be labeled as weak or incapable. You don't want to label our child as weak or as incapable. And you would never say to your child, you are weak and incapable. So you don't want to say you are anxious. But if we can just talk about the patterns the rigidity, the avoidance, the need to help somebody step in and learn how to manage uncertainty, then it might not feel so threatening. And I can even say, like, we don't even have to call it anxiety. The other reason that people don't believe in anxiety, and again, I'm going to be a little stereotypical here and say I hear this more from male gender than female gender, 
is that they don't recognize that a lot of their anger or their aggression or their rigidity or their controlling behavior is anxiety. And so they are doing all this stuff that really is based in their anxiety, but they can't really acknowledge that. And anger and aggression and controlling behavior is far more acceptable in a lot of cultures than anxiety. So it's easier for somebody to say like, well, I just have a hot temper than to say, well, I tend to get really anxious. Right. Or they say, I just want things to be a certain way. I am just trying to impose some order on this chaotic family that we have. Right. And they'll think like, because that's my job. They wouldn't say, I'm really anxious about the fact that, you know, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. And so I sort of freak out about it. They don't say that. They really want to justify the way they're trying to get rid of their anxiety through their anxious or controlling behavior. Yeah. If somebody says, I don't believe in anxiety, you can say, well, it sounds like you just are having a hard time admitting that you have the same feelings that a lot of people have, that you have the same emotional experience that a lot of people have. And that's okay, right? Call it what you want, but don't pretend that it doesn't exist because it's kind of one of the human states of being in the world. A lot of people, when they get involved in mindfulness or they start looking at things through a Buddhist perspective, and remember, mindfulness isn't getting rid of feelings, although a lot of people think that. It's not about creating calmness and being Zen all the time. But it's this idea that you're going to have all these feelings all the time, and that's okay. It's really just about allowing those feelings to come up. If somebody says they don't believe in a feeling, doesn't mean they don't have it. It means they don't like it. If someone said to me, I don't believe in anxiety, I would say, what feelings do you believe in? That's such a good question to ask. Just full of those retorts. I know. That's a retort. That's a retort a la mode. Let's talk about the emotions you do believe. Right. Because if there are those that are off limit and those that are okay, mm-hmm. figure out the ones that are okay to talk about to build a bridge with that person. That's right. And to see what, what is their level of emotional literacy. Because if they say, I don't believe in anxiety, because that happens to be the one that came up. And then you say, Well, what emotions do you believe in? And they go, like, What? Right. Then you know you have somebody who's really disconnected from their emotional lives. Which wouldn't be surprising. Mm-mm, it wouldn't be. When the person's saying things like they don't believe in anxiety. I remember I had this session once and the mom and dad were here with their daughter and it was really tough. Like there were some really, really hard things going on and the dad just started sobbing and the mom leaned back on the couch. She was rubbing his back and she leaned back on the couch so that he couldn't see her. You know what I mean? So like I could see her face, but she was out of his peripheral vision and she mouthed to me, I've never seen this before. Mm. It was such a heartbreaking moment. He couldn't hold it in. Like his whole life, he had never shown her that before. I just thought, oh my gosh, yeah. And he was anxious as F, this guy. Hmm. It was so heartbreaking and powerful. Okay, so what's our next one? What's the one that you hear all the time? You don't know how I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that a song? Baby, you don't know how I feel. Oh, no, wait. That it's you don't know how it feels to love somebody. Can you imagine a marriage where you have one partner saying, I don't believe in anxiety, and the next partner saying, you don't know how I feel? Yeah, that's going to be a tough one. The thing about saying you don't know how I feel 
how do we want to decode that, right? If we put that through the, the emotional literacy translator, it means I'm feeling really fill in the blank right now, and I don't know how to communicate that to you, or you are not listening and you are not able to offer support to me. You know what I was thinking of since I've been a student of yours for a couple of years now? I yes. am imagining that person's externalized anxiety is the one who is really saying that. And when someone says, you don't know how I feel, that's also their anxiety saying, this is very serious. Mm -hmm. We're not listening to this person. We are not listening to this person. We are not going to communicate and unpack these emotions. I'm in charge here. It's a very hijacked state. Mm -hmm. You're right. And it's very much of sort of like, I'm going to disconnect from you. I'm having a meeting right now with my anxiety and you are not going to be a part of the meeting. Yes. You are separate. You don't know how I feel. So don't talk to me about this. Don't think that you can help me about this. You don't get it. And people say that to me a lot in therapy, actually. Well, it's very cult leader language as well. You don't understand. You're on the outside. My anxiety is telling me this is really something we have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to help a family member or trying to help a friend. They're going through a tough time. You're trying to offer information or advice or whatever. And they say, you don't know how I feel. They're saying to you, you don't get how serious, catastrophic, emergent this is. Right. You're not taking it seriously enough. You're not taking it seriously enough. And you're on the outside saying like, it's just a cavity. As I say to people all the time, you're not on the bomb squad here. Like, it's not like you've got to clip the red wire or the blue wire. And so that's that catastrophic thing that says, like, you just don't get it. So there's two ways you want to address that. One is you want to recognize that in that moment, that person thinks that you're not listening. So you can say to them, tell me what I'm not getting. And then they'll give you more information. And you'll hear probably you're not taking it seriously enough or you're dismissing this or you're coming across as if this is a problem to solve. And remember, catastrophic thinking and anxiety shuts down your problem solving. So they're in that mode. You want to ask, oh, okay, so what am I missing? What am I not getting? Especially if you're dealing with a teenager, you might want to say, tell me what I'm not getting and I'm going to really listen to you and see if you can keep that line of communication open. So that's one thing that you want to do. The other thing too is that you can say to them, which I say all the time, I know exactly how you feel. Because we've all felt anxiety. And by the way, I have had incredible moments of anxiety in which I've been so completely overwhelmed that I've lost consciousness. I mean, I do tell, my clients do know about my squeamish fainting. I know exactly how you feel. You can often connect with them and saying, oh, I actually have had situations where I've been incredibly scared or anxious or overwhelmed. So I just want you to know that I may not be in the exact situation that you're in, but I totally know what your brain and body are doing right now because I felt it too. Well, their anxiety is saying, I'm on the bomb squad. Mm -hmm. I need you to talk to me as if I'm on the bomb squad. Right. And you're like, dude, you're not on the bomb squad. And that's bringing out that reaction. Yep. Because the anxiety is always on the bomb squad. And the anxiety, of course, wants to make it a big, huge, unsolvable problem. And remember that when somebody's in that mode, their prefrontal cortex has sort of zizzed out a little bit. So they're not problem solving. They are overwhelmed. And if somebody, when they're anxious, is feeling those strong physical symptoms, then they really freak out about that. So they don't think you understand because 
your heart isn't pounding or you haven't had a tummy ache or you're not sweating or you don't feel like you're going to throw up. So the more that you can say to them in that moment, I can absolutely empathize with what it feels like to be overwhelmed and to not know what a solution is. Right now, it's hard for you to think straight and to say, is there anything I can do to help you get out of this moment? And then we can start to think and problem solve. One of the questions that people ask me all the time, schools ask me this all the time, is what do we do in the moment when somebody's freaking out? And the answer is always not much. You say, okay, so I'm here. What can we do? Do I need to move with you? Do I need to help you do slow breathing? Do I need to just sit with you and empathize with you? You don't want to argue or have a debate with somebody when they're really spiraled because you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about one, Lynn, that comes up with me a lot, talking with friends and family, and that is that people really get stuck in their content. You're like, I know. (laughs) I just went like, with my eyes closed. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. If you understand the difference between content and process, oh my gosh, stop right now and give yourself a big pat on the back, Mm -hmm. putting the work into understanding it. And if you are not sure, let's talk about it. Here's what I hear all the time. 
I wasn't anxious till I became a mom. Oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. That's kind of a classic. I wasn't anxious until blank. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's always some sort of content comes in. And then now the person's anxious. Right. Parents say that to me all the time, too. They're like, well, she wasn't anxious until she threw up on the bus. Or she wasn't anxious until she started middle school. Everything was fine. And generally, that's just not the case. I mean, sometimes that happens. But when people say, I wasn't anxious until, the way we want to look at that is that for whatever reason, you were able to manage that anxiety until something happened that then it really intruded on your life. She wasn't anxious until she threw up on the bus. Well, yeah, she was anxious all the time. You were just able to accommodate it. You were giving her lots of reassurance and doing this and doing that. And then she threw up on the bus and now she won't get on the bus. And now it's like, oh my God, this is a problem. Yeah. Or you're a new parent and all of a sudden you're ruminating all night about the things that you need to do for your kids and family. Well, you ruminated about something else. Like maybe you ruminated about your job. It was something that didn't have the intense level of uncertainty that grabbed onto you. Like being a parent. Yeah. Yes. And then all of a sudden that rumination just got really, really strong to the point it could interfere with your sleep. If you're just sort of living your life and you're able to manage your anxiety because you can organize everything and you're just in charge of you, and then suddenly you're in charge of this other person who's basically helpless and depending on you for everything, and you don't really know exactly what you're supposed to do, then that anxiety that you kept at bay by making sure that everything went as planned now suddenly is unleashed because the new content is really giving your anxiety a lot to work with. They're ascribing it to this new content that showed up without really recognizing that the pattern existed in other places or existed all along, and now it's really just gotten bumped up or escalated based on current circumstances. And then, so what do you say to that, right? So if somebody says, well, this is different, or well, I never was anxious before or whatever, that's a big one to take on for you as a family member. You might just say, well, you know, that's interesting because what I have learned, (laughs) what I have learned in my journey through anxiety is that if we just look at the bigger patterns, the content is always changing. The content is always shifting. It depends on what we're doing developmentally and how we're managing. And I just think it's so much more helpful to look at our consistent patterns rather than trying to pin it on the circumstances of the moment. Now, then somebody say, well, patterns like what? So then you want to be a little bit conversant in those patterns that I talk about in Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, and certainly that I talk about in the Anxiety Audit, so that people begin to recognize the bigger picture. It's so much about the bigger picture and not the specific circumstances that's where people really get stuck. And that's what I'm constantly talking to people about when they say, well, it's not this, it's this. It's not that, it's that. No, no, no. It's the pattern. It's actually a pretty helpful way to look at it. Yeah. I have a retort for it too. Okay, good. Let's hear your retort. Because I always say the content didn't create these anxious patterns. The anxious patterns will find content to attach to. (gasps) I love that. I love that. That's such a good way to talk about it. Right. We have these patterns. We all have them. Mm -hmm. And they're going to attach on to different things. I know so many people who have traveled all over the world and then one day they wake up and they're afraid to fly. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a specific plane crash they were on that created it. 
they just attach to new content. I bet a lot of us know someone who attached that content onto flying just one day. It's sort of if we talk about it like in terms of anger, right? If you've got somebody that's a really angry, even sort of violent person, they like to blame the circumstances for whatever made them anger. Well, well, if it wasn't for this, I wouldn't have flown off the handle or I wouldn't have had to act that way if this person didn't say that. But it's really like this anger monster just sort of like moving through the world looking for things to get angry at. Yeah. And that's how the anxiety is. It's just sort of moving through the world looking for things that are uncertain or scary so that it can grab onto them. It's a sneaky thing. It is a sneaky thing. And then the opposite of that, if we look at that in, in a positive way, is that people will say you really need to have gratitude or appreciate moments of beauty. So if you have a part of you that's really opening to noticing beauty or noticing joy or noticing love, you can move through the world and that part of you that's open to beauty or connection or love will notice that too. So just imagine you're sitting in an airport. If you are an anxious person, there's so much stuff in an airport that can make you anxious. If you're an angry person, there's so much stuff in an airport that can make you angry. But if you are somebody who's looking for moments of connection and joy and gratitude, there's so much in an airport that you can notice that can bring up those feelings as well. So the world is there for you to sort of dump your patterns onto. The challenge is that often the things that are making us angry or anxious are when we're flying. And the majority of the, the love is actually when we are in arrivals and people reunite. We were coming home from a late flight a couple of weeks ago, my family and I, and a partner brought a little puppy to his, mm. to his wife or partner. And my kids got to hold this little puppy. But the puppy was so delighted and everyone around was so excited to see all of these beautiful reunions. It's about mindset too. Yeah. In your life experience, if you are someone who is sensitive and being self-aware of their own emotional literacy, mm -hmm. do they typically go hand in hand with someone who has a positive mindset for appreciating those things? Or can you be really self-aware and be a grump? Emotional literacy means that you're aware of a range of emotions. Somebody who has high emotional literacy is very nuanced in their understanding and appreciation of emotions. And when you're a grump, I feel like that's a pretty, <laughs> like, you're not very nuanced in your emotional literacy. It's sort of like the black and white emotional experience versus the technicolor emotional experience. I think it's hard to be very self-aware and very emotionally nuanced and be grumpy all the time. I ran into somebody that I knew from many years ago, a client of mine, who had the most horrendous childhood. Her stories still haunt me. I think to myself, they haunt me and I just sat with her and heard them. Mm -hmm. She is the most loving, sweet, appreciative, and giving person. It just is astounding. She has a level of attunement and connection and self-awareness. It is just astounding. And she had a horrible, horrible upbringing. I could imagine that she could be very, and I would understand if she was very bitter and suspicious and closed off and angry. And I think about the work she's done to cultivate that because it was a conscious effort for her to cultivate that. It just is an amazing thing. 
she could sit in any situation and things could make her angry or make her distrustful or make her sad. And it's not that she doesn't have those emotions, but man, she has cultivated such a rich emotional life, such a rich awareness of herself. It's really something to behold. I hadn't seen her in a long time. I saw her the other night. She's just an amazing person. Those people are very special. She is very special. Yeah. She always tells me how special she thinks I am. I do not hold a candle to this woman's specialness. Yeah. I hope she knows that. She will know that. I'm going to talk to her again soon. I'll make sure I'll tell her. So let's have a little pep talk here because- okay. If you're a podcast listener or a reader of Lynn's books and you're doing this personal work for you and your family, you are going to encounter people who are a pretty big downer with their inability to sort of get this easily. Yeah. And the hard part about it is that the more you learn about this and the more you're working on this and becoming aware of this, the more that other people will push your buttons because you're going to recognize it. I would imagine that if you become a connoisseur of cheeses, then lousy cheese is going to really bum you out. I don't know if that's such a great analogy, but cheese is, there's a lot of different kinds of cheese. <laughs> I was trying to think of something. Yeah. All right. So anyway, so these things may push your buttons in a way because you've got this increased awareness. So here's the pep talk. You don't have to fix everybody and everything. And so there are people who are going to come into your life, people that are in your life, they're going to say these things and you will do your best to try and shift them and make them more aware. You're going to want to drag them onto your journey of fixing these patterns. Not everybody's going to want to go on the journey and it's not your job. So have your retort ready, your retort a la mode ready. Give it your best shot, but don't feel an obligation to be successful in changing other people's patterns. All I ask that you do for yourself, really, and for your family is that you begin to point out in a gentle way your patterns and maybe even their patterns because it is possible to shift things. But don't take on too much. It's not your job. Let yourself be irritated about it sometimes. That's totally, totally appropriate. I can't believe you said all of that without looking straight at me. <laughs> <laughs> Were you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, and many just like me. Yeah. That's why you're here, Robin. You are the person I'm talking to, right? You're the mom. You're out in the world. You're dealing with it. I'm talking to everybody. Lots of times I'm talking to me, right? I mean, it's the same thing for me. When I was a young therapist way back when, I really felt like I needed to get people to buy what I was selling. And it was really hard for me when they didn't. So if somebody didn't come back or if somebody sent me an email saying, thanks, but we're going to try another therapist, that was hard for me to shake. I took on too much this idea that I would be able to offer people the wisdom, the advice, the comfort that they needed in order to be fixed. And I don't do that anymore. I offer what I can offer. I say what I can say. I try and say it with humor and, and with compassion and with true empathy and caring. And some people like it. A lot of people like it, actually. But some people are like, shut up. And that's okay, too. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's really ever said that to you. Shut up? Yeah. Kids have said it. Oh, of course. Yeah, kids have probably said it. Yeah. 
I, when I worked in inpatient psychiatry, there was this one woman and we were in a family meeting. She said to me, and you, you, Miss La-dee-da social worker. My husband still calls me that. <laughs> That's like the best nickname for you I've ever heard. <laughs> Miss La-dee-da social worker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That should have been your Twitter handle. Um, okay, so it's my Peloton handle. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> if this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.